Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Nathaniel Rich on the decade we could have stopped climate change in his new book, Losing Earth. Nathaniel Rich is a writer at large for the New York Times magazine and a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books and The Atlantic. He's also the author of three novels, and his short fiction has appeared in McSweeney's and Vice, among other publications. He currently lives very close to sea level in New Orleans, and Nathaniel's latest book is Losing Earth, The Decade We Could Have Stopped Climate Change. Nathaniel, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me. Um, So... Basically, one of the through lines of this book is the idea that the basic facts of climate change, what we know now, is not significantly different to what we knew 40 years ago. And we'll get to that in a minute, but I wanted to talk first of all about why write the book now. Well, a couple of reasons. I think, for one, this history, essentially the prehistory of, of our current climate morass, has been largely forgotten if ever it was known well known in the first place uh so i think there was uh you know i think i think even you know today you see some of the people who are leading the fight especially in the u.s uh for climate policy people like alexandria ocasio-cortez uh congresswoman from new york uh saying things like you know the government has known about this since 1989 uh she said last week in, in congress at the end of a very eloquent appeal uh, and of course, the government has known about this since the 1950s. Uh, so I, I think that knowledge is needed to be brought out again. I think more importantly, what I tried to do with Losing Earth was to try to expand the conversation beyond simply, you know, what, what are the policy solutions? What should we do next? How bad is it now? How bad is it going to get? Uh, all of the typical you know, kinds of things you see in climate writing, climate journalism, and, and, and try to access some of the larger questions that I think the crisis poses to us. Like, how is our knowledge of this impending tragedy affecting the way that we uh, see the future, the way that we, we see ourselves, um, the way we uh, understand our, our democracy, our civilization? You know, how is it forcing us to question some of the most basic 
values that, that we hold as, as uh, the, the foundation of, our, of a civil society and how is it touching our own personal lives. And, and, and that's, that's why I wanted to write this story as a narrative and following the lives of several people who, you know, essentially were, gave birth to climate activism, were the first ones to try to solve the problem in a meaningful way uh, during the 1980s and were the first people to grapple uh, on a personal level with the consequences of our of our inaction and we'll look at some of those people some of the heroes as the book of the book as we go along before we do let's just recap so again roughly 40 years ago what were some of the basic facts of what we knew about the changing climate then well there was there was full scientific consensus on the, the fundamental science of climate change uh, not just within the scientific community, but at the highest levels of uh, the U.S. government and within the oil and gas industry. Now, the basic science of global warming, the idea that uh, burning fossil fuels uh, increases the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, which leads to warming over time, that knowledge has been around since the 19th century. But by 1979, you have a series of very um, high-profile uh, reports inside and outside of government projecting exactly the amount of warming that will occur uh, when the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere doubles from prehistoric levels. So it's a very specific series of findings that by, that you have by 1979 that that haven't you know been been really been altered. Uh, the projections haven't really been been altered ever since. You know, I, I spoke to Ken Caldera, who's one of the leading climate scientist in the U.S. He's at Stanford. And he said that every semester uh, when he greets his graduate students, he asks them the question, you know, who, who can name the fundamental developments in climate science since 1979? And it's a trick question because there haven't been any. There, there's only been greater precision uh, in some of the projections about, you know, regional effects. There has been more data, but the basic picture hasn't changed uh, since then. And roughly, what does a, again, just to recap, what does, say, a, a three degree, four degree, five degree change in temperature mean? Well, there's a vast, uh, I mean, I think even to speak about it in terms of degrees is somewhat euphemistic in that there's a, there's a huge range of outcomes, and it varies between not just three and four degrees, but three and 3.1 and 3.2 degrees. Uh, once you get up to five degrees and six degrees, we're talking about collapse of human civilization. At three degrees, you have a reorganization of the planet's ecosystems uh, in ways that I think are essentially impossible to imagine. Speaking from the standpoint of 2019, the last time the world was three degrees warmer, you know, you had horses galloping along the coast in the Arctic Circle and, you know, rich forests up there. And but essentially, before even before you get to three degrees warming, uh, you have major stresses on just about every aspect of modern civilization. You know, where we get our food, how, how we get our, our water, where our cities are, um, where our ports are, the way you know, migration works. And so I think probably when you get to even three degrees warming, you have a level of geopolitical stress that can only lead to catastrophic outcomes. So taking us back to 1979, and there's a 
a guy called Rafe Pomerantz, who basically he discovers an obscure report in a scientific journal he just comes across. Um, tell us something about who he is, first of all. Yeah, he's a fascinating figure who I didn't know anything about until I started researching this piece. And, and frankly, not many people outside of D.C. policy circles knew anything about. But he was... Uh, essentially the only full-time uh, climate activist uh, during the decade that I write about. And in 1979, he's working for Friends of the Earth, a, a major American environmental uh, organization founded by David Brower, one of the founders of the Sierra Club. And his job is to work on air quality uh, issues. And he comes across this obscure report. He's reading about acid rain. And in passing, uh, it mentions, it's an EPA government report, it mentions that essentially that the, the CO2 problem, and if we don't address that, there will be devastating effects on uh, society. And he, he can't believe that something so major uh, and consequential has escaped his notice since he's spent uh, most of his 20s working on air quality issues, pollution issues. The, the fascinating thing about his story to me is that I think he responds much in the way that, that any of us do when we're confronted with the the scale and severity of the problem, which is he, he assumes, well, surely this can't be so bad, or, or if it if it is, surely somebody very important uh, is, is dealing with it. <laughs> and he realizes that the problem is that bad, and nobody's dealing with it, with it. So he takes it upon himself to try to do something. And his first response, I think, is is also somewhat intuitive. He tries to tell everybody he can in a position of power within the U.S. government about the problem. And so at the beginning of the story, uh, we find him wandering around Capitol Hill, having meetings with people at the highest levels of the, the Carter, Jimmy Carter administration, and trying to explain to them the scope of the problem and, and demanding them to act. And uh, he soon realizes that... Uh, that's not enough. It's not enough for, for people in, in positions of power to understand the problem. They need to be pushed. And of course, if people in power already do know, there's this mysterious group of scientists that advise the US government called the Jasons. Who are they? Yeah, they're like this elite um, group of scientific superheroes, basically, uh, uh, sort of the Avengers of the of the government scientific world and they're convened in secret every year by the, the federal government usually by the intelligence agencies uh, to devise sort of novel scientific solutions to national security problems they were formed um, around the time of the manhattan project and by the 1970s their existence has been had been made public by the, the publication of the pentagon papers and one of the leading Jason scientists is a guy named Gordon McDonald, who is a chief advisor uh, to every president, starting with uh, John F. Kennedy. And he urges the group to focus on this question of global warming, which he feels like will present the major uh, existential challenge to not just the U.S. government, but, but to global civilization in the decades ahead. And so uh, Ray Pomerantz learns about McDonald's interest, and you have the two of them teaming up together to try to to, to force some action on the subject. It's an unlikely pair of uh, Rafe Pomerantz, a draft dodger, you know, Vietnam 
war conscientious objector and uh, Gordon McDonald, who's essentially the the brains uh, at the heart of the the military industrial complex, but they are united by their anxiety about this this unmet uh, crisis, and they join together to try to uh, tell first um, the Carter administration and then the American public. And then I want to talk about one of the other heroes of this book, um, a NASA scientist called James Hansen. Who's he? James Hansen was then working for NASA, studying the global atmosphere. And by the end of the decade, he became uh, the face of climate science, uh, both in the U.S. and internationally, when he gave a, a now famous testimony before Congress in 1988 in the middle of the, the hottest summer then in recorded history, when he said that global warming has arrived. It's no longer a theory, but there's evidence in the global temperature records that it's it's already with us. But but his story begins much earlier, back in the in the late seventies, when he begins to publish you know studies about this this issue and starts to predict that that the warming will happen uh, more quickly and more dramatically than than had been anticipated. And what's heroic of, about his story is that he. Uh, from the very beginning, um, understands that it's not enough to simply publish you know, reports about the issue, that he has to uh, speak to people outside of his community, outside of the scientific community. And at the time, that's seen as very questionable practice and earns him a lot of trouble from his colleagues. And, and at one point, even his funding is cut off by the Reagan administration, but he begins talking to journalists and he begins testifying before Congress uh, in 1980, 81, to try to bring attention to the subject. Now, one of the things that was most surprising to me about this book was something you've already alluded to, which is at the beginning of this story, the oil companies, the, the producers of the fossil fuels themselves, were on board with this they knew what was going on and were thinking about obviously thinking about their future business plans but also seriously thinking about solutions to the issue yeah the oil and gas industry was following the subject at least by the 1950s you have the first published studies by the american petroleum institute the big trade group for the industry and also humble oil predecessor to exxon uh, but even then, 1950, these studies are 1954, 57, um, the studies were not questioning the basic science of, of climate change. Uh, they were studies performed to determine how much of, of the increase of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere had been driven by the industry itself. So essentially, how much were they to blame? So they continue to follow the issue over the years uh, and through their, their scientific divisions. And after these reports uh, that I write about in 1979, they ramp up that effort a bit. And from 1979 to about 83, there's a lot more activity, more studies, more symposiums, more conversations uh, within the industry about the problem and, and what kinds of policy might come their way. And then you see a, a greater ramping up at the end of the decade after James Hansen's testimony when all of a sudden in 1988 and 1989, there's this huge public interest in the subject for the first time. You have President 
George H.W. Bush campaigning on the issue. And you have 32 bills in Congress introduced, bipartisan bills to address global warming, and some of them rather ambitious in scope, uh, transformative, that would have changed the entire American economy. But at that point, the industry starts to take a more active role. And, and in Losing Earth, I give the story, I think for the first time, of how the industry's sort of public relations divisions start to get involved and start to attack any kind of policy uh, solutions that might be presented. So there's a real pivot at the end of the decade once it seems that some kind of policy action is inevitable. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Nathaniel Rich, and we're talking about his book, Losing Earth, The Decade We Could Have Stopped Climate Change. And Nathaniel, before we broke, we were talking about how the, the fossil fuel companies started to basically change tack. And they start to become, if not outright denialist, but certainly start to obfuscate by suggesting that, you know, the the science is not as complete as we think it is there are doubts there are doubts over various aspects of it um and this is obviously a this is obviously something that we're much more familiar with today isn't it of course it doesn't they don't move straight to full-fledged denialism that takes years to to develop that strategy but the first uh pivot comes after hansen's hearing 
when executives at the highest levels of Exxon and the American Petroleum Institute, as well as on the, the board of an international petroleum uh, group, a global industry group uh, made up of members from API and, and Exxon, uh, start to formulate a strategy to address this policy is coming and they, they reach the same conclusions these different groups uh, and those conclusions are we need to be an active participant in any policy discussion because this will affect our business we need to make sure that any policy doesn't go beyond what's warranted by the science we need to emphasize uncertainty in the science where it exists which i would say is you know to clarify is not saying that the entire science is uncertain but emphasizing uh, where there's uncertainty around the margins, like in you know predictions of decades in the future, and so sort of most most critically, we will refuse to endorse any policy that affects the bottom line, and that's the beginning of it. And you have, uh, as a result of that strategy, this effort within the American Petroleum Institute. It's almost a afterthought, but their public relations office. Uh, starts a modest campaign to, at first modest, to find some scientists who might be relied upon to make these arguments to the press. And they find at first three or, it's literally three or four American scientists who all of a sudden, at the end of 1989, start showing up in national, in the national press in articles about the issue. And they start to question whether you know, what, how certain the science really is and how necessary policy is. And, and, and maybe we should wait a little bit. And that effort is far more successful than the, the folks who are the strategists ever imagined. I mean, I spoke with them at length about this. And before long, the public narrative in the U.S. changes quite dramatically from a problem that seemed to have, a story that seemed to have only one version, which is, this is scary, this is happening fast, and we need to act, and how are we going to act, now becomes a story with two sides, where maybe it's not so certain after all. And that's like catnip to uh, journalists here. And national publications begin running major stories saying, um, maybe this is overblown. And the success of that strategy is so uh, effective that before long, within a couple of years, that becomes the, the centerpiece of the oil and gas industry's uh, effort to fight against policy is, is essentially a propaganda campaign. And over the years, they keep pushing the line of the rhetoric until you get by the end of the 90s or the late 90s, you get into not just emphasizing uncertainty, but saying that the entire science might itself be uncertain, essentially the science that dates back to the 19th century. And and that's where we are really to this day, uh, at least within U.S. politics, where that the Republican Party has adopted as a central tenet of its party identity uh, this, this fantasy of, of climate denialism, even after, I should say, that the oil and gas industry itself no longer uh, is comfortable making their kinds of statements publicly. Um, you know, if you watch an Exxon ad in, in the U.S. On, on national television, you'd think they were a green energy company. They talk about all their work promoting, you know, green algae and so on um, and, and climate solutions. But uh, we're in this, this strange funhouse realm where the Republican Party is now further to the right of the industry that gave them their, their talking points to begin with.
throughout this book, you obviously talk to all of the major players in this story, um, lots and lots of people on both sides, and I'd really like to know what it was like to talk to now at this, you know, at, the, at this point in time to one of the villains of this book. Um, there's a politician during the uh, George H.W. Bush years called John Sununu, who again is someone I'd not come across before reading this book. Um, he is one of the most significant figures in the inaction to deal with climate change in the American government at that time. Um, what was it like to talk to him? He's a fascinating figure. There's not really anyone else like him. He's was prominent in national politics at the time, and his family still remains prominent because they essentially run the state of New Hampshire uh, to this day. He, Sununu I, I, I was... did have trouble. I looked him up on Wikipedia and had trouble working out which one he was because <laughs> his father was father. a politician and he was and his son is. And, yeah. yeah, so there's... Yeah, Sununu is the, is the patriarch. John Sununu, who I write about, he was a two-term governor of New Hampshire, although he had a training as a, as a scientist and an engineer. And he was credited with delivering the Republican... Uh, candidacy to George H.W. Bush in 1988 uh, after Reagan's second term ended. Bush had lost the first, uh, the Iowa caucus, and the New Hampshire primary is, is the next primary, very significant in the electoral calendar. And Sununu, as governor, used his political machine in New Hampshire to deliver that state to Bush and, and sent him on a glide path towards the White House. And Bush offered Sununu basically any job in the White House that he wanted. And Sununu took chief of staff and became the most powerful person within the administration. And Sununu is essentially patient zero for climate denialism because he was immediately skeptical of global warming. He was skeptical of the computer models that James Hansen and others used to essentially these future prediction uh, machines. And based on his own scientific past, even though he was studying very different, you know, it was an entirely different discipline, he believed himself the superior scientist um, and thought that the climate scientist science was overblown. And he was really the first person to make these arguments. You know, he also had a whole conspiratorial theory about leftist forces around the globe using scientific theories to advance what he called anti-growth policy. And you saw this as the, the latest example of a decades-long effort. And, you know, so this kind of thing is now, you know, a version of this is now mainstream Republican ideology, but he was the first one to articulate it in these terms. And it was so, and you know, so out of step at the time, he had to explain this to other people within the White House who didn't understand what he was talking about, that he was questioning the science or that, this was being used to destroy growth uh, in the American economy. But he was able, through sheer political force, to win a fight within the administration about what to do about this, uh, what was then in process, this, this a global binding treaty to reduce carbon emissions all over the, all over the planet. And he, was, he managed to force the U.S. to withdraw its support of that version of it. And in retrospect, that that's the closest we've come to a, a global solution. And but yeah, talking to Sununu, he's you know megalomaniac doesn't even begin really to describe the level of, of arrogance and 
self-assuredness. He still believes that all of this is overblown. He still is skeptical about the science. And uh, he is unapologetic about any of it. In fact, I asked him, you know, at the end of our conversations, I said, well, so let me get this straight. Is it, is it, is it right to say that, that you alone were responsible for thwarting this global uh, negotiation of a treaty? And he said, essentially, he laughed. He said, well, I'd like to take credit for doing that. But in fact, he felt that the treaty itself was toothless, that even if it was a, quote, binding treaty, there was no enforcement mechanism uh, around that could force the countries, all the countries of the world to live up to the commitments they, they said they were going to make. And I think that you know, I think it's hard to take seriously his scientific arguments or his sort of global conspiracy arguments, but I do think one has to take seriously his uh, geopolitical uh, cynicism. Uh, of course, the counter argument would be, well, at the time, 1989, uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the U.S. occupied uh, a unique position of global political power, and if the administration, if a president was strongly behind a major you know treaty a major solution uh, to this problem i think we'd certainly you know if we if, if not solving it outright we'd certainly be in a, a much more favorable trajectory than we are now but of course we'll never know and not only that we've already done it as you talk about in the book we dealt with cfc's in exactly the same way and it worked yeah, and in fact, that that was a major turning point in this decade, in the mid-1980s, when a global treaty to the ozone problem materialized. And at that point, 85, 86, 87, uh, it was widely expected that a treaty on carbon dioxide modeled after the ozone treaty, using the same kind of framework, the same kind of international process, organized under the auspices of the United Nations, that was going to be the solution. And the IPCC process, which continues to this day, with the Paris Accords being the most recent, you know, manifestation of it, is still, you know, it's still with us. And yet it, it becomes, you know, less strong, less enforceable, and well, totally non-enforceable at this point, um, as the years have, have gone on, and, and less heated as well. And so, to finish off the inevitable question, how pessimistic are you? for the future. I mean, as we're recording this, literally the news is full of stories about this report, about, you know, uh, a million species being in, in danger of extinction, you know, a massive blow to biodiversity. Could something like that be something that, as a catalyst? It's hard to imagine it, just about any kind of disastrous scenario acting as a catalyst, since we've had so many uh, to this this point. And yet, I I think that there has been a tremendous amount of movement in the public conversation just in the last six months, at least, in the, in the United States, especially, where we've seen this new wave of activism led by young people that I think has learned or absorbed uh, a crucial lesson from the failures of people like Rafe Pomerantz and, and James Hansen and Al Gore and the rest over the years, which is to say that you know the argument until now has been, and this was first formulated by Rafe Pomerantz and James Hansen in the late 1970s, early 80s, was, has been, you know, we have the science, we know what to do, and we better act before it's too late. And it would be, you know, it would be crazy not to act. That argument, which 
I would call an appeal to, to reason has had some effect, but ultimately, I think what the history shows us is the political limitations to just appealing to uh, logic and rationality. And what the new activism has done is they've moved beyond, you know, the emphasis is no longer on, you know, we know the science, we know how bad it is, we know it's crazy not to act. They're now saying, you know, our failure to act is robbing us of our chance for a future, is, is, is killing us. Uh, you have young people you know, sitting in in, the, in Congress, uh, speaking to, to politicians, saying, you're killing us, you're robbing our future from us. This is the same line that you hear from Greta Thunberg, this, the Swedish activist. If we don't act, we will have blood on our hands, is something Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said recently in, in Congress. And that is an appeal to moral urgency. And, it, and it's understanding the issue, I think, in a more honest, as well as a more emotional, personal Way And I think that kind of appeal has the possibility of changing the public conversation. And I think it already has to some extent in the U.S. Certainly it's become an issue that people, more politicians, um, are taking much more seriously this time around. And so, you know, is that going to solve it? Uh, no, of course, not by itself. But I do think we're seeing the beginning of a, of a transition, a beginning of a, of a reckoning that at least gives me some hope that we will make serious effort, a serious effort to avoid some of the worst cataclysms that, that now seem headed our way. So I've been talking to Nathaniel Rich. We've been talking about his book, Losing Earth, The Decade We Could Have Stopped Climate Change, which is out in the UK from Picador. Nathaniel, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thanks for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com